Welcome to Brood in Bangkok, the podcast about the people you meet in the city that makes a hard man crumble. Hey, this is Brood in Bangkok. Today I'm actually here with a co-host. You might know him from bangkokpodcast.com or gregtodefer.com. His name is Greg Jorgensen, and he's not only a great podcast host, but also an awesome writer and all-around funny guy, which comes in quite useful because he can definitely bring some lightheartedness to my somewhat more sinister interviews. If you're curious about Greg's work, you can check out links to his websites in the show notes. Today, we'll interview one of Thailand's more unique residents. Oh, when I played, I played... That's Dave Grimaldi, also known as Rock Philosopher. It's a nickname he picked up due to his work as an underground music journalist in Bangkok. It's him talking about the time okay, when he was playing World of Warcraft up to 16 hours a day. Dave, however, is not only a journalist and a gamer, he also volunteered to work in a refugee camp in Thailand near the Burmese border, and he'll be sharing his experiences in today's episode. Let's get on with the show. This is your host, Carsten Eichholz, and your host, Greg Jorgensen. We're at the Hemingways on Sukhumvit Soy 14. I think this place might be getting torn down pretty soon, which is a real shame because it's a gorgeous old house, beautiful little restaurant, nice little bar, but it's on valuable land, and we all know what that means in Bangkok. Our guest today has told me he would like to buy that house. Is that right? <laughs> it's true, yes. I love this place. So we get to this guy who can afford the former Laotian ambassador's house in the center of Sukhumvit. Let's start first with your name. Dave Kamaldi, also known as the Rock Philosopher. I am a blogger on underground music. Uh, bands that come into town, I'll write about them or interview them. I photograph them. And also I've started writing and interviewing uh, bands overseas. But mostly it's Bangkok music. Rewind back a bit. Where did your personal story start? My personal story started in Vietnam in 1974, where I was born. I was adopted to an Italian-American family from northern New Jersey, the Cremaldi family, a family of plumbers and basically tradespeople from southern Italy. Do they use that as a pickup line? What? Well, I, I don't know. Like, you know, if someone needs their pipes checked, I don't... No, it's nothing like that. There were actually... I mean, if you asked me earlier, there are some funny stories my father had from doing plumbing for most of his life but I wouldn't I, I can't help but think the them. image of a, an Italian American plumber from New Jersey I mean was he really like this is probably a horrific stereotype was he really like one of those hey how you doing uh, come over to my house I'll show you around you know like one of those guys no, my father did not have the Italian accent but he was a typical hothead if you got on his wrong side he'd pull his gun out his gun not his fire flower <laughs> just like <laughs> my, my, my father was a member of the NRA, and sometimes there'd be a gun on the table when we're having dinner at night. Um, God rest his soul. He passed away at 98. But um, Sorry to hear that. That's a, you know, his time was coming. But You did told me earlier that you are a gamer. Yes. Italian plumber son. Gamer. Yes. But I only became, I became a gamer probably uh, after university. I wasn't I wasn't a, I didn't start playing any video games till I went to Korea to teach English. Tell me you started with Super Mario. No, I started with Diablo. I think it was Diablo 2. You left New Jersey and you didn't start gaming until you got to 
South Korea? Yeah, I was I was in my tw- I was mid twenties. Going to South Korea and not playing video games, I guess, is like going to Russia and not drinking vodka. Exactly, exactly. I got there and I just wanted to party all the time. And my friends, even my foreign friends, they would go. My friends would go to the video game. They, they would go to like we call it the PC bong. PC bong means room. So PC computer room. And you go there. What do you do there? You're either looking at pornography or you're playing video games. I would. I was a strange guy. I might actually be writing. And then I started looking around, going. Everyone was playing StarCraft. And then a couple people were playing Diablo 2. And then I asked my friends about it. They got me into Diablo 2. I started playing Diablo 2 when I was in Korea. And then I got into uh, Civilization 3, Sid Meier's Civilization. It's interesting, though, because for, for people who don't know much about Korean culture, like professional video game players in Korea are like rock stars, right? You say, what was it, StarCraft? Right? That's- I never played that, but I would see everyone in the, everyone was playing that. Kids were dying. People were, old, like middle-aged men were dying playing that game. Face down in a bowl of ramen. I mean, they were dead. A, a room full of cigarette smoke and, and just body odor for, you know, for the last 48 years, you know. For, like, I'm from Canada, so where I come from, I mean, if you're, you're a diehard loser if that's your life, right? But in Korea, you're a rock star, and that's a totally legitimate way to spend a lot of time, right? Yeah, and, and there there were women that would get dolled up to go to the PC bong. And honestly, when you don't, if you don't have a lot of money, or even if you like, maybe you don't have any friends. When you're a foreigner in Korea, you live in a small town. You actually won't really have a lot of friends outside of the teachers and your students. And you just end up like, okay, I'm a freak everywhere I go. I'm just going to go to the PC room tonight, Saturday night, and watch some porn. <laughs> no, 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 never. Uh, okay, you know, I used to play StarCraft as well, and I, I kicked ass at StarCraft until it started getting popular in Korea, and then I, you know. So you're a StarCraft hipster. You know, I used to do it before it was cool. <laughs> uh, you could say that. He looks like a hipster, I think. I don't. I thought. I thought with the. I thought you were gonna have a beard. I don't even recognize you without the beard. Uh, we, we online. We're still pretending I have a beard. Like without the beard, I, I wouldn't even recognize you in the street. Now that you have, like, your, you know, no facial hair, I'm like, it's just another guy. I don't fucking know who this is. South Korea, you liked it? I did. I was there five years. I liked it. It was, it was easy enough for me to stay. I did a stint at a Hagwon, that means English Institute, Institute in Korea. And then I worked at, Yun, uh, I won't say the name of the university. I worked at a university in Korea for... About three, three and a half years. Korea's also big drinkers, right? Yes. Yes. And uh, soju, mekchu. Soju to say, oh, mekchu to say, oh. You just learn to say that all the time. Just give me more soju, give me more beer. Ajuma! Yeah. And, and how did that work out for you? I just, I just drank a lot in Korea. That's, I have, you know, I'm a, I'm a great social drinker. Uh, and I had no problem drinking pojang matcha, which is this orange tent on the street. You can just drink alcohol, liquor, and get food till the sun comes up. And I, I did that several nights in my five years of living in Korea. Yeah, they say odang. Oh, it's like this uh, fish. It's a fish product on a stick, and they boil it up, and you get. It is like there's like just st- Korean street food and soju, which is uh, Korean. Uh, I think it's rice wine and and beer. 
and you just drink that. It's actually, it's actually quite cheap, so that's a great time. If you just are a lush and just have no ambition, you can work in Korea. <laughs> you can work in Korea, get shit-faced every night of the week, and uh, still retain a job, and just as long as you can smooth your way through it. Yeah. You're saying you had no ambition, you got shit-faced every other night of the week. Not every night. I, not every night. I mean, I'm... Because some nights I was in the PC bong playing Diablo too, or actually I had my own computer. Computer. Okay, and then you said this life is too stressful. I'm going to move to Thailand. What happened was, well, we didn't really get to the part where I got to the university, and I was spoiled. Where I had three months paid holiday a year. I started coming to Thailand. Then I go to Laos. I go to Cambodia. I went to Nepal. Living in Korea was actually just so boring that I went insane, and I I broke up. My girlfriend broke up with me. Probably because I had no ambition. She saw that. Okay, he's got no ambition. I love him, but he's not going anywhere. And Korean women are very like, okay, he's not going anywhere with his life. And you weren't talented so, enough to parlay your video game experience into a rock star StarCraft career. <laughs> no, I wasn't. Well, no, it was Diablo too. It was Diablo too. Things have been different. If you had played StarCraft, she could have said. So, you know what? T Diablo two. I didn't start playing that until I got to the university. So the entire time I was at the Hogwan, I wasn't playing. And then I, that was there for about a year and eight months. And then I went to Nepal. Then I went home. Then I went back to. Then I went back to Korea and started the university gig for about three years. I think while I was there, I started playing Diablo 2. And I was just like, this is amazing. This is great. Why does anyone go out? Like, why do people have social lives? I mean, this is better than... I don't like talking to these idiots in a, anywhere. So. It's, a, it's a funny question, but it's serious. I mean, when I, I kind of missed the whole video game thing. But when I went back to Canada about 10 years ago, I went out to a couple of friends' places to visit and just meet up with them and re-catch up a little bit. And I was amazed at how much their life revolved around these video games. And they were so into it that they would ignore their friends and they would ignore their social engagements. And <clears throat> it was really kind of shocking to me how, how, how much video games have become like the only form of entertainment, of mass entertainment. And I saw my friends just spending hours and hours and hours and hours doing nothing, moving pixels around on a screen. Don't get me wrong, I, live video, I love video games, but... Hey, 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 with your rating, I mean, there's not nothing, man. These are some tough bosses in these dungeons. Don't get so. me wrong, man. I, <laughs> I spent hours and hours on GTA V, but, but at, a, at a certain point, you have to remember, or you have to think, like, man, I haven't seen the sun in a week and a half. Wait, hours and hours. Yes, well, I could go on and say, okay, it was days and days, but days are comprised of hours. That, that's so cute. Um... So, I've played EverQuest for about hours and hours, and if you put it into a number, it's about 3,600. <laughs> and I get called a casual gamer by my serious gaming friends. Um, casual. Yeah. No, noob. Wait, 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 wait. <laughs> you, you, that's a good time. You play, you play World of Warcraft, right? Uh, I, I don't play that anymore. But I, I, used, to, I used to play it from... Um, Probably around 2007, on and off. Well, normally, your your binging coincides with when the expansion is released or when you first discover it. So I played it a lot when I first discovered it. Let's get to the then chase you get here. Out from it. Okay. How many playtime days do you have? What does that mean? That means when you type slash played, you can see how many hours or days you've invested in the game. <laughs> Oh, when I played, 
I played. I mean, <laughs> okay. What does an addict do? Do they think about doing anything else but what their addiction is? No. They just play. They do it. Okay. If you're a heroin addict, I'm not a heroin addict. I've never done heroin. But if I was, when you're a heroin addict, that's what you do. I mean, you don't really ask yourself, how many days have I done this? It's just like, when can I get my next fix? So when I was, when I was playing WoW, it's just, you're just playing WoW. You don't give a shit about anything else. 16 hours a day for days on end, and then you just kind of go, boom, I'm done with this. It's boring. And then you wait for the next expansion, and you play it. And at some point in time, you just go, you know what? I'm just doing the same thing over and over again. The dopamine, the dopamine fixation is not really there for me. And you just go, I got to find my next fix because it's not doing it for me. So before, but before you started WoW, you you know moved to Thailand. Yes, because internet here is so much better than South Korea. It's not. I basically just washed up on the shore here and then just never left. You mentioned you had very early on in your stay in Thailand, you uh, experienced, uh, you went to one of the refugee camps that are located yes. in, Thai, in Thailand's border to Burma. That's true. How long have you been there? I was only there two weeks. I was supposed to be there three months. Can you describe what that was like? I'm trying to get uh, another... Another unspecified beverage that we will be ordering at this bar, and we cannot exactly mention. It's a brewed beverage. I mean, we're called brewed in, ba uh, we're called, uh, brewed in Bangkok after all, so we drink brewed Garsten led me to believe that this was uh, an alcohol-related no, podcast. No, 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 no. I'm just joking, but... <laughs> we, we, we brewed... <laughs> it's like, it's like brewed in Bangkok. What, you, what is this about craft beer or something like that? Tea and coffee and other things we can't mention by name on the podcast. Okay, but uh, so we're talking about the refugee camp. Yes. So when I le I left Korea in 2004, I was very depressed. I uh, broke up with my well, my my girlfriend broke up with me because she realized how unambitious I was, uh, and I don't blame her. More power to her. Um, and I was depressed, and then after a while, I just said, "All right, I'm leaving here," and uh, I. I, it's so long ago, I can't even remember, but I basically ended up in Thailand teaching English in a refugee camp up on the, uh, the Thai-Burma border. And for me, like, I'm a really, ci I'm a city person. Like, I, I come from a family of, like, people that can, they can pitch tents, and my dad was really into camping and fishing, and he was a man's man. I can pitch but a tent. <laughs> I am an idiot outdoors, and I'm thrown into, you know, literally you're in the in the rain season in Thailand up in the mountains on the Thai Burma border, and um, you know there's no electricity. You have electricity about two hours a day. You're uh, in a like a thatched like hut on stilts, and there's no beer. It, you know, it, the teaching was great. Let me just talk about the people. The people were great. I was working with Karen uh, refugees from Myanmar. Technically, it's called Myanmar, and, and I call it Burma, but technically it is Myanmar. And um, my job was to teach English and anything to the students, and I had several classes a day, and it was just this open classroom in, uh, in, a, in a, like a little village up in the mountains. It was beautiful. It was very picturesque. Um, just very there's no technology there was uh, I had money and nothing to spend it on basically I mean I, I literally they actually there were smugglers that would smuggle in I don't know 
there, they would uh, bring in liquor. Literally, it was just liquor. It was like um, beer. They would smuggle in beer. Why did you have to it, smuggle beer? Uh, that was not allowed in the refugee camp. Why? Oh. And they had Karen rice wine. I would buy the wine, and then we'd, uh, we'd drink it with uh, Coca-Cola. But it was warm. We had no ice. And... Um, I did that, and then I, I started. I just got sick, and I was mentally, psychologically going insane. Were you living under like, the same conditions as the refugees? Yes, uh, I was. Yeah, I was living. Yes, exactly. And it was the rain season, and it was like raining every day. Your 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 clothes are damp every day. I was going insane. I was getting sick, and I couldn't. After two 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 weeks, I there was an NGO truck, and I got I got out of there, but. I never really, um, I never forgot about it, and I never really, uh, never really forgave myself for leaving. And then I, I ended up doing a uh, a program up in Canada. Actually, I did a I did a refugee awareness seminar, basically up in Nova Scotia, up in um, I think it was Bridgewater, Bridgewater, Nova Scotia, outside of Hal, about two hours from Halifax. I had a friend up there that set that up, and um, so that, and then that was great. I, I was at, at that time. I was actually kind of a, an expert on Karen refugees from Burma. So, okay, so in that refugee camp, like they had these rules. What do you do? You think the rules made sense? Were these like for the protection of people, or what do you think? You know what? Like, I mean, the, the rules. I there. As far as I could tell, there weren't a lot of rules. There were just a lot of lacking of resources. But it's rules. I didn't see any rules. There wasn't really any rules to break, but there was nothing to do. How'd there's no bars. There's no, there's no drugs. There's no liquor. There's no electricity. One, honestly, once you take electricity away and there's not, no cold beer, a lot of your problems are solved right there. <laughs> it's like, so, I mean, what, really, that's the honest what, truth. What do people do there all day? Uh, they were big into football. My students were really into uh, playing sports on the weekend. It was so boring there. My hobbies included lesson planning, teaching, nighttime. You're like literally doing work by candlelight. And after a while, you're just like, fuck it, I'm going to sleep. You wake up. My students, my students lived in the, uh, the stilt house. They would start cooking around five o'clock in the morning, and you just wake up. You could hear them just start. They're starting to cook, and you could the, the house fills up with smoke. <laughs> and then you just wake up and you eat your uh, you eat your rice, and they'd give you coffee with about five scoops of sugar in it and some cookies, and you go, oh my God, I'm gonna get diabetes drinking like drinking all this sugary coffee and eating all this sugar. So I mean, how, guys, how, how do you how do you have to imagine this refugee camp? Is there like is there like a fence around it with soldiers standing guard? Or there are soldiers. Yeah, you go in first. You go through the Thai. You'll go through a Thai checkpoint. They have guns because they're soldiers. Then you'll go through a Karen checkpoint. There was a, this was Maramu refugee camp. About it's a couple hours outside of Mesoriang. That's in Mehongson. And I went there in the rain season, so it's actually quite... Going up there, we went in a 4 by 4 I was going with an NGO. Under, I will not name the name of the NGO, but it was uh, it was a Dutch NGO working in the Turin refugee camps. And they brought me up in the uh, 
And for, uh, honestly, like, when I, I met, in May Saryang, I met the organization, I won't say their name, and then they sent me, like, okay, you got to go and get a two-month visa in Laos. I'm like, okay. So I get that, come back, and then they're like, okay, you got to go to May Saryang and call this guy. I'm like, okay. So I call this guy, and he's like, he's like, you know, these are like illegal people in Thailand. Like, so I'm like, okay, I'll just call this guy. And call him up. and like, okay, well, where there's a truck, uh, we'll get you there. Okay, so I'm just hanging out in my hotel and getting drunk. I don't know what I'm doing. And then I'm like, okay, we got a truck. You got to come now. I'm like, now? I'm like, yeah, now. Okay, you know. And then you just you just go. And then you're like, okay, we're in the truck. And then, and then um, you... So you are in the. Is, is, it's is, the rain season. It's like June or July, and you're going up in a four by four up this mountain road. It's spiraling, and it's been absolutely destroyed by monsoons and everything. And if you can imagine that, you're literally like the truck is like tilting over at like an angle, which appears like if it goes any more, it will fall off the mountain. And you're you're just kind of in it going. Jesus Christ, I just, I was depressed in Korea, and now I'm here, and I'm going to die trying to help these refugees, but I wasn't even thinking that. I was just thinking, shit, I'm just going to die. I wasn't even thinking about helping all refugees. the depression I was going through. I was just thinking about, I'm going to I'm gonna die now. Like, if, if this guy cannot control this 4 by 4 truck, we are just going to drop off the mountain here. We were like, where's my gaming buddies? Where's my raiding party to help me out here? Yeah, no, it was. It wasn't that. Yeah, at that point in time, I was probably. Uh, I was just depressed over losing love. I was just depressed. So I mean, and then you know, like literally, like if you've ever seen a road, a mountain road up in northern Thailand that has been destroyed by monsoon, it it it's like you can't even imagine that you would take a vehicle over it. It, it's it's unbel- it's mud, just driving over mud. How long did that take you to get... It took us like three and a half hours to get up there. Oh. And it was harrowing. It was nonstop. I'm going to die. Every couple minutes, I'm like, all right, I think I might die. If this guy, Simon, was this British expat that worked for the NGO, was driving me up the mountain. Uh, no, actually, it was, a, it was a Thai guy that worked for the NGO. So it was a Thai guy that worked for the NGO. His name was actually David, my name. And, um, you know, then we kind of get to this, you know, it's kind of it's kind of drizzling. I think it was drizzling. And then we kind of got to this time where the sun came out. And then trucks, the supply trucks were getting stuck in the mud. And finally, we ended up in the refugee camp. And once I got there, I'm like... Were people coming out, running and cheering? Say, hey, yeah. No. no, no. It was really like... And I said to myself, what the fuck am I doing here? I've made the biggest mistake of my life. Jesus fucking Christ. I did not know it was going to be this depressing. <laughs> I, I was expecting something more like a Hollywood movie. And it's, it was just fucking terrible. What's, what's the first meal? It's not going to be something from, uh, you know, the Frugal Gourmet or whatever. So, Julia Child, it was... The food was... The, the food... The food they were giving me was whatever. I'm not going to start knocking it, but it was it, it sucked. I it found out later. I found out later that other people were getting better food than I was. That's what pissed me off. I'm like, oh wait, so other people are getting better food than I am. Other people. So I just had to start slipping people more money, and then I'd get better food. 
Oh, okay. Wait, you had to bribe for the money. Uh, well, you had to bribe your food. Yeah, actually, at one point in time, the uh, when I got to, I think at one point at the checkpoint, at some point in time, someone was trying to get five hundred baht from me, and I'm like, dude, I'm a volunteer. I am volunteering my time, and why the hell am I going to give you money? No. <laughs> and so they just said, okay, okay, you don't, we don't need your money. You can go in. But I was like. Dude, uh, no, I'm not giving me any money. I'm a volunteer. I'm not getting paid for all the time that I'm coming here. So, so when so. you went in there, like, were people just sitting outside their huts, or were they like? I got there. It was kind of dusk, so the sun was kind of down, and it was nighttime. Well, again, we're up in the mountains. We're up in a, a like a again. It's a camp. It's 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 a thinking about like how to what it to compare it to. Think about something you would see in National Geographic from the 1950s in a third world developing country, and that's what you get. It's it's people living in uh, huts. <laughs> it's 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 grim. I mean, it's no matter what National Ge Geographic or the Discovery Channel make it look like. So it's like it's uh, until that until the the video the via videographers the filmmakers show up, it's not that romantic until they show up and then it all becomes like wow this is just great. So how, is it like a family in each hut or is it like how big are those? Yeah, you know what? Mostly it's a lot of children and people that are not adults. It's a lot of. Um, Because basically they 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 have left they had left Myanmar because it was not safe in their states. A lot of them are, they're from Karen State. It's not it was not safe in Karen State at the time. So they would come over. They would cross the border illegally and end up in refugee camps. Uh, and there's 12 of them up on the uh, at that at the time that I, I I'm not well researched in what the status is now, but. At the time that I was there, which is 10, 11 years ago, there was about 12 refugee camps on the, the on the border. Now, I was in Meiramu, outside of Meisariang. Okay, and after you, and it was about 12,000 people there. Most of them were children, less under 18 years old. And most most of the people in the camp were women and children, some men, but mostly it's women and children. And people just hang out. Yeah, I mean, there's there's volunteers that go in, and there are educated Karen that will teach uh, subjects to the students. There's um, obviously there's a lot of NGOs in there working to get people into international programs overseas. There are people from uh, there was like Karen students that were going to Canada through one of the Canadian programs. And I, when I did subsequently, when I went to uh, Nova Scotia. Before I, I went there, I met up with Karen refugees in um, in Nova Scotia. Uh, in uh, I met two of them. The finish to that was supposed to be in Thailand. I kind of was running out of money, and I was running out of focus and ambition. I didn't know that when you do a documentary, because I was doing I was doing two things. I was doing like a nonprofit and a documentary, and I didn't realize, oh, this can quickly really overwhelm you, because I didn't really plan all of it. And I was overwhelmed by, oh my god, I have a lot of work to do and responsibilities here, and I just couldn't deal with it. I remember you told me you at some point you picked up teaching in a Thai school. Yes, and um, you did that for about a year. 
Yes, in, in 2004 and 2005, I taught for a year and a half. And, and then he said, I enjoy teaching so much. I now want to see what that's like from the other side and study. Or, well, e yes, kind of, yeah. How, like, you decided to do a master's in Thailand. Yeah, what happened was that I, I was teaching at a Thai government high school, and I was teaching English, and I just kind of got burnt out from that. And there was offers coming in, and I got a bit jaded. And then I decided, hey, I, there's this program at a Thai university, and let me sign up for it. And you kind of automatically just get in. And then I got in, and I tried that out, and it wasn't really for me. After a couple of weeks. How much does it cost to make do like a master's? It was for a year and a half course at a good school in Thailand. It was, it was probably about fifteen, twenty thousand dollars, I think. I think for one semester no, I think for one year it would have been four hundred thousand at the time. This was back in two thousand and six, I think. Okay, so that's not that cheap. So it was probably well it's cheaper than America then. So it was probably around, yeah, I think it was like four hundred thousand for the first for the two semesters, and then probably for the next year they probably would have wanted another two hundred thousand or something. I don't remember. I only stayed for like a month, and then I just was like, I'm out. Shut my phone off. So I and I never I never paid them any money. That's the thing. It's like, well, I didn't pay you any money, so I'm not losing anything here. So. Okay, so um, usually, how do you pay your tuition in Thailand? What, like cashier's check? They want it in cash. In cash? Yeah, they want four hundred. They wanted four hundred thousand in cash in a bag. Like in in, in, in want, small in small. Okay, <laughs> I've got my. Do they do they give you a bag with like a little bot sign on the side of it that you can, you can grasp it like a villain in a cartoon or something? I've hired a team of ninjas in a black. Van, and we're going to arrive at the university and just all jump out with throwing stars and, and knives. And yeah, it was like, you guys are insane. We can't do a wire transfer. Oh, no, we don't do that. Oh, you're just, it's only 2005. You can't do wire transfers. What's up with that? You want me to, people get killed over less money here, and you want me to show up with. A significant amount of denarii. Okay, so you're like, okay, I'm not going to invest 400,000 baht in my future if it has to be in cash. I'm going to, I'm going to invest it in something else. Um, it, was, it wasn't that. It was that they were rescheduling all the time. And then I was just, I only liked one class out of four. And I spoke to my girlfriend and I'm just like, I only like one class out of four. And she's like, ah, it's a waste of time. For, forget about it. You know, and I'm like, yeah, maybe I'll just do that. And so what did you do then? I just stopped going to school. I stopped going to the classes. Gave you a lot of free time? Yes, it did. And like the typical expat, you went around, uh, got to know all the staff in Cowboy by first name, nickname, and the name of their parents, Buffalo? Or <laughs> <laughs> To be honest... I actually did that before I went to school. Okay. And then by the time I went to school, well, after I, I had been here and been living here, I kind of, in those formative years, I got, I got over all the, the um, extracurricular activities of 
the city which the city is well known for. Um, okay, so that out of your system, what did you do? I. That's a good question. I was hanging out one night in my friend's pizza parlor, and he's playing a video game. Ooh. And I'm like, "What's that?" It was, it was his video. It was his pizza parlor, and I'm like, "What's that?" And he's like, "It's World of Warcraft." He was, he was from Holland, and, and I'm like, "What's that?" He's it's like, his pizza parlor. And he's and he's and he's like, he's he's a, he's a Dutch guy, and he's and, and he's that must be good pizza, right? And uh, it was good pizza. Okay. And he's like. World of Warcraft and he's describing it and I'm like that sounds like Diablo he's like this is like Diablo 2 times 100 and I'm like oh wow and I was looking at it and then I immediately just went home and then I just researched it I think and I, I, I just went out and I bought the game and I started playing World of Warcraft skip forward 6 years <laughs> <laughs> I was not playing World of Warcraft 6 years but yeah. how long were you playing it? It was on and off, but when I played, I played. I was a serious, like, gaming addict junkie when I was playing. No doubt about it. I was just because I was I was playing on the Oceana servers, and the um, I was so I was playing with people that were from Australia, New Zealand, and some of them from from other places like Europe. But at some point, I mean. You had a bit of a revelation. You said, okay, I've been playing World of Warcraft on and off and on and off and on and off and on. And what happened? Well, I mean, just honestly, with the game, you just get bored from it because it's a lot of... Uh, it's just grinding and doing repetitive tasks. So for To talk in, in real-world layman's terms... Video games, at some point, after you get through their content, you're just doing repetitive tasks, which we call daily daily quests or uh, grinding, which is just like you're trying to get to the next level. So, and what, once that happens, it just goes. Why am I doing this? So you remind you remind yourself that you're just playing a game, and you just go, "All right, I'm done. It's boring." Because like, at some point in time, I was just playing on the actual. Uh, so it's not like a stock market, but I was just playing. I was buying. I was a trader on World of Warcraft uh, auction house. So I was just making things and then selling them. You, you know, you buy low, you sell. You buy. You buy low, and then you make a product and you sell it high on the weekends. Like an so I was, investment I was, banker orc. Yeah. So I was just like on the week on the weekdays. I was just buying up um, um, uh, raw gems, and then I would. because I was a jewel crafter on my. Uh, Bloodthirst Paladin, like Blood, what's that? Blood Elf Paladin. So I haven't played it with some, forgetting all the language. And then on the weekends, I would sell all my all the the gear or the jewels that I would make. So, okay, this is all gamer geeky stuff. And how did you? If you're a gamer, you understand this stuff. And how did you make money outside of the world? So what happened was that I basically inherited money from my family. My father died. So, yeah. But you also got a job, right? I eventually had to get a job when the money ran out. Yeah. What job did you get? I retook my job at a at the old high school that I used to work at. So, wait, you worked at a school in 2005? Yes. Quit after a year? In ten year and a half. Year and a half. I was there a year and a half. So you quit mid-semester? Or mid-school year, or how does that work? Yes, I, I quit 
Man, they must, See, they what, must have what, what written your letter of recommendation. What was happening was I had an offer to work in a law firm, and it was going to be significant, more significantly more money, and I was getting jaded. And once you actually know that you're worth more, you just go, you know, you're not really good enough for me anymore because I can work at these guys, this law firm, and yeah, I, I get it. So you went back, but you went you went back to the school, and they accepted you back. I went back because I wrote on my resume that I had a background in um, what was it, film and theater, whatever. And they, they were actually really interested in me directing students for their their school productions and stuff. During the first semester, I was offered another job, and um, it, w- it would have been more money. And once you kind of get that, because at a government school, you're not making a lot of money, so you kind of get a bit jaded. You go, why am I working and I'm miserable here? And then, and then I was also just obsessed with music. I was just really getting into documenting Bangkok underground music. I was hoping for, uh, I was at this school, but I just loved rock and roll so much. I could not teach for one well, more, you know. Like, like, if you saw me at school, all I really gave a shit about was... Were you like Jack Black? Yeah, I was a bit like Jack Black, because I, I would be sitting at my computer, because we got Wi-Fi. It wasn't very good Wi-Fi. And I'd be just, like, checking out what shows are happening. And then, like, you'd have, like, student interviews. And when you find out they like music, you start injecting, teaching them about bands, underground bands in Bangkok. Or, like, you're a Thai. You don't even know about these bands. What the fuck is wrong with you? Really? Come on. Get with it, people. I knew I could. I was supposed to do something else, and it wasn't really for me. I was really, it wasn't just that I, that I loved rock and roll so much. It was that I knew that I was literally miserable and wasting my life away at the school. But you did decide to make music your life. I kind of did it almost by default. But yes. Okay, so what is your default mode now? I'm a creative person. I'm a thinker. Uh, I'm an introvert. I'm a writer, philosopher, and I do what I do to survive. And that's what I do. So. You, I mean, you are the go-to person for gigs in Bangkok. I wouldn't say that, but some people think so. Yeah. What are you? What are some recommendations you have for good music in Bangkok? Where should people go? Like if they, yeah, I remember. I remember a long time ago there used to be a website called the Bangkok Gig Guide. Oh yeah, I remember that. Um, but that kind of that kind of petered out. Yeah, it did. And for the average person like myself, who's not really involved in the music scene. I don't even really know there is a music scene here. Yes, yes. So, yeah, like, where do you go, and how do you find out about this stuff? I, I mean, the thing is, like, I would turn it back on people and say, what kind of music do you like? What are you looking for? What Do you like music? If you don't like music, then there's not a whole lot of point in going out, but what, what kind of music do you like? I like a lot of music, but really the only the only place that I can think off the top of my head that I would ever go to in Bangkok is at here the 13th, is that blues bar up on Samson yes, yes. Road. A uh, fantastic little tiny place with some awesome musicians. Sure, if you can get in there, it's a great place to go for blues. You got to get there early, yeah. By the time the bands come on at ten, it's absolutely packed. That's a great place. Yes, yeah, yeah. But it's awesome, and that the 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 the, the packedness and the the closeness of it adds to the romantic, yeah. the romanticism of it and the the, the the uniqueness of it. There's also saxophone up by the Victory Monument, which is a really cool place. But beyond those two places, like. 
I don't really know of any place that has a big website or a social media presence or an advertising presence that, that the average person would see or know about. I hate to say this, but hey, you're just going to have to check out my blog sometime. Or you can contact me, davecrimaldi.weebly.com, and there'll be a, uh, hopefully there'll be a link at some point in, uh, in the text that comes along with this podcast. But we'll put it in the show notes. For a casual, meaning just someone that doesn't know what they're looking for, they kind of want to get exposed to everything. Honestly, if you follow BK Magazine and you follow their get their uh, their event guides for like the weekends or whatever, they're really good about just telling you what's happening. So if you find out there's a festival, like oh, Noise Market's coming up. If Noise Market's coming up in May, then you can go. That's at Museum Siam. Uh, it's down south of uh, Saram Luang. Just go to that. Lots of bands over the course of an entire weekend. It's free. You bring your kids. It's just a family environment. There's people selling arts and crafts. Yeah, you're right. BK is a really good source. I mean, it's, it's, it's not like it's underground. It's just like, are you reading? Do you actually care? Because like, it's all right there. But if you actually don't give a shit, then you're not going to go. You're not going to really pay attention to it. Because it's all right there. It's like BK Magazine covers this stuff all the time. They cover it all the time. It's always there. I always see it. If you're not reading it, and you just go, uh, I don't really care. It's just another event. In a th- a th- the, the problem now is that people have so many events that they can go to, and there's so much content online they can pay attention to, that they're not necessarily going to give any special attention to a music event that they've never heard about in a place right. they've never heard about, what bands they've never heard of. And I think I think that's that's a reality of like living in Bangkok now. And I'm not sure if this is a, a symptom of actually of Bangkok or just the way technology and media works these days. But you have to really go out and be proactive in finding out this stuff. Like when I was back in Canada, the details of all these gigs and stuff would come to me via my friends or via yeah. television or commercials or radio or something. But but now, especially in Bangkok, I find if you want to know what's going on, you have to want to know what's yeah. going on. You have to seek out yourself. Yeah. But, I mean, if you actually want to know about it, it's all right there. I mean, if you put in Bangkok Underground Music, I'm right there. I'm number one in, in Google. So and That's DaveCrimaldi.weebly.com for everything that's not listed in BK Magazine. Yeah, yeah. I, I love the people at BK Magazine, so no problem there. Thank you very much. That was a really awesome interview, Dave. Thanks for making it out to Hemingway's tonight. Cool. Thanks, Dave. I hope to see you playing the drums wailing away one day on stage, eh? Awesome. Okay, then thank you very much. That's it for um, uh, Brood in Bangkok for today. And uh, we'll hope to see you at the next episode. Awesome. Thanks.